Good morning. Uh, my name is David Speakman, as Adam has said, and I'm glad to be with you this morning to open up God's Word and to, um, to take a look at what God has to say for us this morning through His Word. I also want to say a word of thank you to the congregation. Um, we have been prayed for and served well by Christ Central during our whole time of doing ministry at Davidson. And from, uh, from Margaret and my wife and from my kids, Mary Gray and Samuel, um, we just want to express a very heartfelt um, thank you for all the ways that you've taken care of us and continue to support us. And so it is a joy to, to be with you all this morning and to, um, as Georgia said, showcase a little bit of what our ministry is about at Davidson as well as to, um, to see what God has to say for us this morning through his word. If you do have your Bible, I invite you to turn to two different passages of Scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and also 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and um, that is also printed in your bulletin for you. Last week, Giorgio started us off on a new series about the kingdom of God, and uh, this morning I get the, uh, the hard task of tackling a tough subject about the kingdom of God, a topic that is complex at times confusing, very much embattled personally and communally for us, and that is the topic of mission. For some of us, when you hear the word mission, it induces a bunch of guilt. You have the sense of, I'm not doing enough. I've never gone outside of my own hometown. I've never been on a mission trip. I've never been a missionary. Can God actually use someone like me? For others of us, it uh, compounds the guilt with fear. Maybe God would ask me to leave the comfort of my, uh, my surroundings and ask me to go do something radical and something uh, difficult. And for some of us, it's not just a surface level of guilt or fear that, that gives us angst about the topic of mission. For some of us, it, it is a more troubling and more uh, a, a deeper unrest. Because when you think of mission, you think of the way the claims of Jesus cut across the, the grain of pluralism and relativism in our culture. Could there be a more intolerant uh, unthinking thing than evangelism, than mission. It sounds sometimes like imperialism. It smacks of, um, of sort of cultural and theological chauvinism. We've got a better take on God than you do. And it sometimes feels like a hostile, unthinking, aggressive act to go and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. For others of us, the, uh, the topic is just irrelevant. Is there anything more off the radar screen for us than mission or evangelism because it's so small and so truncated it's just a fringe activity of a few specially called people it's not the lifeblood of the church and so for some of us it's just irrelevant others of us we exalt it to a very high position we romanticize and idealize it it's for the specially called the eccentric the radically obedient those who really are super spiritual and so with all that on the plate before us this morning, how are we going to tackle this, this, um, this topic? If we, if we lend our ears to those different embattled, confusing, complex things, we're going to reduce mission, we're going to obscure mission, we're going to deprive ourselves, the church, of what God designed and desires mission to be, both our identity and our activity as those who have been called by His name and freed by His blood. So what do you do when you come to an issue that is embattled and confusing and complex? You do exactly what Georgia exhorted us to do last week. You go to the Word. The Word of God that initiates and sustains and accomplishes the mission of God. And so this morning we're going to go to these two different texts and say, how does God conceive of mission? How does God motivate mission? How does God evaluate mission? What is His idea about mission in the first place? And hopefully when we do that, these two texts can cut through the spin 
in the baggage and all the guilt and all the unrest and perhaps even the irrelevance of mission. So I invite you this morning to hear from God's Word, Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Exodus 19, verse 4 says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then Peter in his epistle picks up the same language in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you pray with me as we come to these portions of God's word this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that you call us your treasured possession. We thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but you speak to us in a way that we can understand and that we can actually act upon. And so we ask that you do that very thing for us this morning, that you would unstop our ears, that you would soften our hearts, that you take the scales off of our eyes, Lord, so that we could see who we are because how you've made us and who you're calling us to be as well. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us here this morning, wherever we come from, wherever we've been. We pray it in your name. Amen. As I said before, I have a daughter, uh, Mary Gray, who is five years old. And of all the things that Mary Gray has taught me, perhaps the most uh, poignant is she has taught me how to watch a movie. She's, uh, she's an expert movie watcher. And uh, for Mary Gray, she's not content just to, to sit back and kind of take in a movie and to enjoy the story. But it is an interactive experience for her. And so it all started back when uh, we popped in Charlotte's Web and the DVD player not too, um, too many years ago. Uh, when we'd walk in, she wouldn't just be watching Charlotte's Web. She would be acting out Charlotte's Web. And so if I'd say, Mary Grace, time to come to dinner. No, Dad, I'm Fern. And if I'd call Margaret Ann, uh, Margaret Ann is, is dinner ready. She's not Margaret Ann, she's Mrs. Arable Daddy. And so we'd all take on the characters of the movie. And then she progressed from Charlotte's Web up to Mary Poppins. And so when we'd walk in, she wouldn't just be watching the movie. She'd actually have a little umbrella out, and she'd have on her gloves, and she'd have on her house coat, and she'd have on her Mary Poppins hat. And when Mary Poppins would clap it for the penguins, Mary Gray would clap for the penguins. And it was just this interactive experience. And so now that we've kind of gone beyond uh, Charlotte's Web and Sound of Music and, and, uh, and Mary Poppins, we're now into high school musical. And so that's sort of a frightful experience where it's not just enough to watch Gabriella sing in a Troy's uh, eyes. Um, she has to actually enact that herself. So she gets out her little Mr. Microphone, and she's, uh, she's singing as if Troy was standing right before her. And actually, I, I'm kind of ashamed to say she, uh, she really enjoys Wheel of Fortune. Um, and so when a Wheel of Fortune comes on, she throws on her high heels and her, her slinkiest nightgown and uh, touches the wall as if the letters were being turned by Vanna White herself. So, um, so Mary Grace taught me how to watch a movie. She's taught me how to enjoy things in front of us. It is, she's never content with just an armchair, sit back in a detached way experience. She's drawn into the story. She's drawn into the story and she's actually wrapped up in it. It's never passive consumption. 
She's not enjoy, she doesn't enjoy it from the armchair. She enjoys it and acts it out in real life. Her enjoyment, her experience of whatever she's watching becomes embodiment. Inevitably, it becomes embodiment. And dear friends, this morning as we come to, to church and we hear the wonderful good news of the gospel through the word preached, and as we'll later uh, eat at God's table here this morning, what is he telling us? That the gospel is never an end in itself. That we're, not, we're never called to just passive consumption. We're not called to experience from afar and appreciate from the armchair of a Christian life. There's no such thing as detached appreciation. God's gospel pulls us into the story. It wraps us, us, in, wraps us up in it, and it calls us to embodiment. It calls us to live out the grace that we've received as far as the curse is found. And once we get back to the very heart of what God has called us to be as humans and who He has recreated us to be in His image, we're getting back to the very heart of what the gospel and God's mission is all about. That we recover our true identity as God's image bearers. And when that is recovered, it kindles a redemptive and creational embodiment for us. We're restored to our proper function. There's something missional in your spiritual DNA. The way God has created you is to be a people on a mission from God. And as we come to these two texts this morning, we see that God knows our tendency to be passive, to hoard up and, and, uh, and kind of keep for ourselves all of His treasures, not to want to give away or actually minister the, the, the riches of His redemption for other people. And so chapter 19 of Exodus, it comes right after God has just achieved the, the most glorious, most famous act of redemption in the Old Testament. He's rescued his people out of 400 years of making bricks for Pharaoh in the slave pits of Egypt. And he knows that their tendency is going to say, because God has rescued us, we must be special. We must now have arrived. And he says, no, you are my treasured possession. Therefore, be a kingdom of priests. Be ministering to and modeling for people what God's grace looks like. And Peter picks up that language in chapter 2 of his epistle, and he says, in the midst of suffering and confusion, he's writing to people who are sort of at the edge of life, he knows that their temptation is going to be paralyzed and to let the, um, the rivers of mission dry up. And he says, no, you are a chosen, race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, a holy nation, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is the genesis of mission. That is the, uh, that is the launching pad for God's redemptive uh, act of the whole cosmos. And if we can rightly recover that this morning from these texts, maybe we can do a little bit of remedial work to undo all of the stigma and all of the, um, the, the things that would kind of push mission to a peripheral, specialized calling for the eccentric few. And to see that really at the heart of what you are as a human, really at the heart of who you are as a Christian, is a call to be God's people as far as the curse is found. And so four things we're going to get at this morning in order to unpack that. We're going to see the motivation for mission. Why should we do this? We're going to see the disposition of mission. How should we go about this task? We're going to see the action of mission. What does God actually call us to do? And then lastly, the location for mission. So in the first place this morning, if we're going to be God's people remade in His image, what is the motivation to be a people of mission as God is on a mission? And what we see here in chapter 2 of uh, Peter's epistle is that God's grace to us begets God's grace from us. That mercy received, mercy given to us, 
always will translate into mercy given away. That you've been given the gift of new life. That God's grace has shown up on your doorstep. It has been translated into your language so that you can understand it and you can appropriate it and you can live off of it. And because of that, because God has had a mission to you, He calls you to have a mission through you. Look at verse 10. He says this, Once you were not a people. You were nobodies. You had no leg to stand on, no status, no identity at all. But now you are God's people. How do you become God's people? His grace shows up in your life. You didn't manufacture it. You didn't call it into being. He came and sought you out and gave you His grace. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And he says this in uh, chapter in verse 10 also. Once you had not received mercy, you had no spiritual leg to stand on. You had no merit to, to, uh, to commend yourself before God. And yet, at just the right time, Christ died for you and gave you His mercy so that you could have a leg to stand on. He says, you are my treasured possession. The motivation for mission is that you've been called treasured by God. You've been treasured by Him. You've been given His grace. You've been given His mercy. You've been given an identity as a people. You're no longer nobodies. You're no longer slaves in Egypt. You are His treasured possession. And why is that? Verse 9 says this, So that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God's mission to us His grace showing up on our doorsteps, His grace inviting itself into our lives and changing us from within is the genesis of mission. It is the motivation for mission. It is the launching pad for God's mission through us. One of my favorite um, poets is a man named Billy Collins. And um, always around Mother's Day, I read this this poem of his. It's called The Lanyard. Has anyone ever made a lanyard before? Uh, He writes a poem about a lanyard that he made at summer camp. And he says this, I sat at a workbench at a deep Adirondack lake learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I'd never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I'd made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of cool medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and had led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and to swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here's clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from my counselor. Here's a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth. Two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took that two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing that I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. What is he saying? He's saying, I I made this little token lanyard and I laid it on my mom's lap thinking this would make us even. Dear friends, your mission for God, your service for the kingdom is not a golden lanyard that you lay at God's feet that somehow makes you even with Him. There's no barter in exchange with God. He's been gracious to you. He's poured out His mercy for you. 
He has shed the own blood of his dear son so that you can look God in the face and not have to, to, um, to be shamed. And therefore, the lanyard is not available for us. Your motivation for mission is not an avenue of getting even with God. Your motivation for mission is not of appeasing God and getting him off your back. I did my duty. Leave me alone. The motivation for mission is that you can never repay God. And yet, by His grace, He includes you in His mission so that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. And so mission is not a, is not a peripheral, eccentric, fringe activity of a faithful few. It is the very lifeblood of a Christian. It is essential to Christianity. It is central to the life of faith. God has been good to you in the gospel. Therefore, go and be good in the same way, embody in the same way God has been good to you. Well, if that is our motivation, the, the next question we need to answer this morning is, what is our disposition for mission? How do we move out into the world as the minister of God's grace, as the ministers of His redemption? What is the manner? What is the ethos? How do we actually go about doing this? And I want to say as loudly and as clearly as I can this morning, that we don't move out into the world from a disposition of technique. We don't move out into the world from a disposition of polished skill. We don't move out into the world from a disposition of fail-safe formulas and canned gospel presentations and aptitude and expertise. There's so many of us in this room for whom mission is, very, is, a, is a very troubling idea simply because it smacks of arrogance. And some of us feel so clearly that it just seems like another grab for power because it's so tied up with agendas for control and imperialism, it's interwoven into politics and legislation. It seems territorial, arrogant, and impersonal. And yet that is not at all the way God describes mission in this text before us. He says you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a treasured possession. You have been chosen. You've been treasured. Why? You've been elected to serve. You've been treasured to treasure again. You've been gifted with grace to give grace away. And nothing of that, nothing of that privilege is arrogant or grab for power or another, another pol- political legislation sort of deal. It is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's why it's so beautiful in this text that verse 10 balances out verse 9 of chapter 2 there of 1 Peter. You have all these these statements of privilege in verse 9. Verse 10 comes in and says, Remember, you you didn't have any titles before. You were slaves in Egypt. You were nobodies. You weren't even a people. And remember, you didn't even have mercy. You had no access to grace. You had no assurance of redemption. And yet now you do. (coughs) Why chosen? Why holy? Why treasured? so that God can put on a showcase, a microcosm of what He's doing, the cosmos over in your life. The disposition of mission that we take out is the disposition of people who know what it's like to live in darkness, who know know what it's like not to have status, who know what it's like to, to wonder, am I really right with God? And yet at the same time to know, yes, you have been made right because of what Jesus has done. So the disposition we take out is a phrase that one of my favorite authors, Henry Nowen, uses. He says, you're supposed to go out as wounded healers. Wounded. Wounded. Humble. Personal. Sympathetic. Genuine love and concern. You're one bruised reed 
who has not been broken. You are a dimly smoldering wick that was not stuffed out. That was not snuffed out. Therefore, you know how to treat other people's wounds graciously, redemptively, seriously, thoughtfully. You are a dimly smoldering wick that was not snuffed out. So you know how to treat other people's lives that are on the edge, fraying, slipping off of, of a control. You know how to treat them as one who has been wounded and can treat them with care and respect. Yet at the same time, a healer, one who really does have answers. One that really can make a difference. One that can really go out and say, I have something of substance and of value to commend to you. Something that can actually make a difference. So many times as a church, we succumb to two fallacies. One is the Napoleon Dynamite fallacy, is it not? We have no skills, we say. I have nothing to commend to other people. I don't, know, I don't have anything good to give away. No skills. You see, you really do have something to give away. And that is the gospel that is the truth of redemption. You really do have something of meaning and value of substance to commend to other people. And we say, we have no skills. Let me ask you some hard questions this morning. Do you have a pair of eyes this morning? Can with those eyes, can you pay attention and give a look of knowing to someone else? Do you have ears this morning? Can you open up your ears and listen to someone's story rather than blabbing on about your story that you want so desperately people to understand? Do you have a tongue this morning? Can you use that tongue and those vocal cords to actually communicate something of grace and of goodness to other people? Do you know how to write? Could you write a note of thanks? Could you write a note of of grace to someone who is desperately longing for a piece of mail in their mailbox? You you are a healer. You have something to give away. The other fallacy that we succumb to is the, the strong Christian fallacy, is it not? I'm not strong enough. You don't know what I'm struggling with as far as sin. Dear friends, the best gift you have to offer to this world, this broken, beaten-up world, is not your strength. It's not your goodness. It's not your not being needy of the gospel. But it is your present tense experience of the gospel, meeting you where you are, giving you hope where you are, so that you can actually give to other people that same hope. I worked in this inner-city mission in St. Louis during seminary, and um, the man that I worked with was named Lafayette Beck. He'd been through the, uh, the drug and alcohol rehab program at the Sunshine Mission, and now he was the director of the program and uh, didn't graduate from high school, no seminary training, no skills, we'd say, for ministry. And yet above his desk, Lafayette had this little sign that said, God does not call the qualified, but God qualifies the called. And every day I got to see a man who was not qualified for anything. He had no letters after his name. He had no degrees. And yet here was a man who's a wounded healer moving out with a disposition of sympathy and genuine concern and love, did extraordinary things for the gospel, did extraordinary things for the kingdom. The disposition of mission that we move out into the world with is not a disposition of technique and privilege and arrogance, but it is wounded healers telling one beggar, telling another beggar where to find bread. Well, that is true. That is the motivation for our mission. If that is the disposition with which we're supposed to move out into the world, what is the action of mission? What are we supposed to do? <laughs> it's so, so hard to understand sometimes. What, what do you want me to do? Am I supposed to do evangelism? Am I supposed to do justice? Am I supposed to give mercy? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the action of mission is ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. You notice in, in chapter 19 of Exodus, God says, Keep my covenant. Obey my voice. In other words, simply be who I've made you to be. 
faithfulness. Faithfulness, not fruitfulness, not perfection, not extraordinary results. Faithfulness. I love the parable of the talents in which the master comes and settles accounts with the uh, the servants. And he gives the same commendation to the the one who brought in ten talents, the one who brought in um, four talents. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. I love that he didn't say, well done, good and productive servant. He didn't say, well done, good and fruitful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You trusted the master. Enter into the joy of your master. Faithfulness is what God calls us to. That is the action of mission. Faithfulness indeed, going into the places where justice and mercy are not present and bringing about justice and mercy, but also faithfulness in word. And this is the, probably the hard part for us because we love mercy and we love justice at Christ Central. There's also faithfulness in word. We need to go out and proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness, right? We just sung about it not too long ago this morning that the children of Zion, we sung, children of the heavenly King, speak their joys abroad. And we said in blessed assurance, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. It is simply opening up your mouth and saying, this is how God has been good to me. God calls us to be a kingdom of priests, those who would stand before the culture, set truth before their eyes, giving a thoughtful, relevant, personal account of hope, of mercy, of God's grace borne out in the gospel. And so it's faithfulness indeed, but it's also faithfulness in word. There is a time, Christ central, when we need to open up our mouths and say, Jesus is Lord, and you must deal with that. There's a time when we need to go to people who do not have hope in Christ and say, I have hope in Christ. You need, to, you need to consider this. Faithfulness is what God calls us to. Faithfulness in word, faithfulness in deed. But it's not just faithfulness, because that almost sounds a little too spiritual, almost too over the top. It's ordinary faithfulness. It's not super spiritual. It's not uber spirituality. It's not radical obedience. It's not a life of ceaseless evangelism. It isn't leveraging every relationship for a gospel presentation. It is ordinary faithfulness. It is going out into the ordinary places of your life and being faithful for God. My grandmother and her uh, friend Sadie Hodge um, grew up in the same town I grew up in, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. And there is a um, Lookout Mountain's this kind of idyllic little place in the mountains outside of Chattanooga. And uh, it's also famous for Rock City, Ruby Falls, and Klein Railway, all these tourist traps there. And my grandmother, Mimi, and her friend Sadie Hodge every morning would get on their slicker raincoats and their walking sticks and their walking hats and their walking shoes, and they would walk down West Brow um, Road right by the Incline Railway. And right along uh, West, Brow, West, Brow, uh, West Brow Road, that's hard to say, um, there are these parking meters where the tourists would come and park their cars so they could go pay their money and ride the Incline Railway. And uh, they would be hunched along, walking, crawling basically down that street, and you think they were hunched over because of their age. They were, they were never hunched over because of their age. They were scanning the ground for pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters, which they would pick up and store up over a whole year's time. Now, of course, there was this, the legendary $100 bill they found, you know, the stories of $5 bills and $1 bills. But basically, they'd pick up all the pocket change that people had dropped and not thought to pick up as they are putting it in the parking meters. Ordinary, just walking and picking up pocket change. And at the end of the year, they would pull together all their money, and they would have sometimes as much as three and $400 of just pocket change they picked up on the ground. And they would take that money, and they would use it to buy uh, gifts for a family in our, in our community that wouldn't have Christmas gifts otherwise. 
and to give them a nice Christmas dinner they wouldn't have otherwise. Ordinary faithfulness, walking down the road and picking up pennies and then using that in a creative, redemptive way, yielding extraordinary results. The action of mission is not out there someplace. It's not for the eccentric, radical, obedient. It's for you and me right here. Ordinary faithfulness, doing the most ordinary thing, yielding ordinary, I'm sorry, extraordinary results. Well, if that is our motivation, and that's the disposition, and that's what we're called to do, the million-dollar question, where do we do this? Where are we supposed to go and be busy for the kingdom? Where are we supposed to go and fulfill this mission that God has called us to? We notice in this text that God calls a particular people, Israel, to a partic- at a particular time when they've been freed from slavery, to a particular place for the sake of the whole world and for all of humanity. It was not just to further their own interest. It wasn't just to, to work for the interests of other people um, out there. It was a small group of people on behalf of the whole world. And so the answer for where do we do mission is everywhere. There is no Christendom anymore. There is no U.S. headquarters that is the, uh, the launching pad for all of mission because we're a Christian country and we send missionaries to all the poor benighted souls out there who have not heard the American gospel of progress in Jesus too. There is no Christendom. Here's some staggering statistics, at least they're staggering for me. That at the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of Christians lived in North America and Europe, and 10% lived outside of uh, North America and Europe. In the beginning of the 21st century, 70% of the world's Christians live in the non-Western world. North America, Europe, we are not Christendom anymore. Here's some more staggering statistics. More Christians worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria every Sunday than in all the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Britain, Europe, and North America combined. That right now in China, a communist country, every Sunday, there are more Christians worshiping in China on on a given Sunday than in all of the Western churches in the world. Mission is from everywhere to everywhere. Some of us would be uh, perhaps um, chagrined to know that that people are sending missionaries to North America. The, the, US, the U.S. receives missionaries from Korea and China and Nigeria and Africa. And we don't like that because it gets the client-patron uh, kind of balance of power out of whack. And yet it is so beautiful, isn't it? That the gospel is now coming back to us because we need it just as much as everyone else does. Mission is from everywhere to everywhere. And so the question is not, do we go overseas? Do we go to someone else's city to do mercy ministry? Do we go right outside the door to to Noda and um, 36th Street? The answer is yes. The question is, where is the world broken? Where is there injustice? Where does um, mercy not exist? The people of God are called to go to those very places with all the resources of the gospel and to communicate the hope that we have in Jesus. The answer to where do we do mission is everywhere. What family have you been put into by God's strange stroke of providence? What relationships do you enjoy casually? What relationships do you enjoy at work? You know, God is calling us to go into places that are economically broken and artistically broken and philosophically broken and in the broken education system and to be the people of God, salt and light in those places because that is what mission is all about. God redeeming every last thing 
that has been touched and twisted and tainted by the fall. The location for mission is everywhere. Everywhere that's in need of the gospel. Everything that is broken, that is where God has called us to be. So that means word and deed. That means kingdom and church. That means home and abroad. Everywhere is a candidate for God's redemption. So if that is our motivation, that God has been merciful to us, and our disposition is, is that of wounded healers, and the action of mission is ordinary faithfulness, faithfulness in word, faithfulness in deed, and the location is everything that has been touched by the fall, where do we end this morning? I want you to be free this morning by this passage to struggle and to come to terms with perhaps your reluctance to be involved in the mission of God. I want you to be freed up by this passage this morning to repent of self-kingdom building and perhaps the fear and the guilt and the passivity that paralyze us from giving an account of the hope that God has called us to. I want you you to be free to struggle with those things. Because remember, we're saved by God's grace. But at the same time, I want you to be free to fulfill God's calling. Alan Williams uh, walked on the Wake Forest basketball team um, back in the, uh, the late 90s. He was six foot two, 175 pounds. He was a white guy who could shoot, but not much else. And yet he walked on the Wake Forest basketball team. And he said one of the most um, uh, troubling and just tough experiences he had to do was to walk into the open gym before the season started as a scrawny, white um, walk-on and to play pickup basketball with the guys who would be his future teammates. And so he didn't get in on the first game. Nobody picked him for their team. Uh, so he got in on the second game, and he had to kind of go about the hard process of choosing which guys to be on his team, who is he going to offend, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So he finally gets out on the court, and every single time they would pass the ball to him, his teammates would say, don't shoot it, pass it, skip it, get rid of it. And uh, every time he'd get the ball, the guy who was defending him would play off of him and double-team the other good player. Just a humiliating experience. Well, it got on in his opening game. He's playing with guys like Josh Howard, plays for the Dallas Mavericks, all these future NBA stars, Robert O'Kelly, ACC Player of the Year, undisputed best player on the floor, and he's actually on Allen's team. And um, so it gets down to six-all game point. And... um, and every time Allen's gotten the ball, you know, said, don't shoot it, pass it, get rid of it, skip it. And the guy who was, um, he was uh, driving the ball towards the basket, Allen's man doubles down on him. And there's only one place the guy has to pass it. <laughs> so he passes it to Allen. And so Allen's sitting there with the ball, wide open, three-point shot. If he makes it, they win the game. If he misses it, he uh, proves everybody right. Um, and he hears all these voices come out in at once. Pass it. Don't shoot it. Skip it. Get rid of it. And over the top of all those voices is telling him to get rid of the ball. Don't do it. You're going to mess it up. He hears one voice. It's the voice of Robert O'Kelly, the undisputed best player on the floor, the future ACC player of the year that season. And he says, knock it down. And so Alan lets it go, switches the three-pointer. He's a hero for at least um, least the afternoon. (laughs) What I want you to hear this morning as we look at God's mission to us and God's mission through us, is not a whole bunch of voices of saying, you're going to mess it up. Just pass it to the more trained people, your pastors and your elders, and people who really know what they're doing. I want you to hear the voice of God this morning coming through all of the confusion over the top of every embattled personal and communal idea about mission saying, knock it down. He's redeemed you by His grace. He's called you a chosen race a royal priesthood, 
He's called you his treasured possession. And his voice to you, his, his message to you is not, don't mess it up. It's knock it down. Because what do we know about what God says? He says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, by your grace, include us in your mission. We know that you could do it so much more quickly, so much more easily, so much more beautifully, so much more effectively if you didn't include us. And yet, by your grace, you include us. And so we pray for the strength and the resolve and the mercy that we need to go and be your people in this broken world. We pray it in your name. Amen.